Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we're not alone in this world. We thank you that there really is someone who is in charge of all things. That gives us a lot of stability when things go awry in our lives. Everyone is watching uh, the weather channel and the news channels, watching this, uh, this hurricane develop. What are the implications? What do we do? These things remind us that we are not nearly as capable and proficient as we like to think. Uh, we can do some amazing things. When they built that tower in Babel, you, you actually stated that, that if something wasn't done, there was potential for much damage to occur. You, you have given us gifts and abilities, and you have given us skills, and that can be used for good, but it can also be used for rebellion against you. And when things happen in our lives, they remind us of just how limited we are and how small we are and how much we need you in every area of our lives. We assume every day that uh, we assume that health will be there. But health isn't always there. We assume that social order and stability will be there but it isn't always there. We, we assume that civility will be there. Uh, we assume that law will be there. But it isn't always there. We assume that religious freedom will be there. But it isn't always there. Every good and perfect gift comes down from your hand. We thank you for what we've been given. We would pray, Lord, for our nation that as we have been hit and there has been crisis and there is another crisis now brewing uh, that you would use this for good that people who haven't thought of you would turn to you. In the midst of all this, Lord, we should be able to sleep at night because you give, to their, you give to your beloved even in their sleep. So we thank you for your greatness and we thank you for your power. We thank you for your character which means we can trust how you use your power. You have power over your power. You are a good God. You are a holy God. You're a great God. So tonight, Lord, remind us of what you're doing in our lives. Remind us of your power. Remind us of your work that often mystifies us, but is your work nevertheless and produces a result that we could never imagine. We submit ourselves to you. We, we pray for... Uh, these men whose wives are, are, are very, very ill. And we pray, Lord, sometimes, quite frankly, it's easier for us to go through it than to watch our wives go through it. It just, it just breaks us up. It just tears our guts out. So I, I pray for these dear guys that you would comfort them as they attempt to comfort their wives and minister to them. May both couple since your presence and the nearness of Christ and his goodness. We ask that your healing hand would be in each situation upon each of these gals and that you would do your good work and we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking in 2 Corinthians and if you've been with us, you know that we're not doing it the normal way we'd go through a book, verse by verse. But, but what we're really doing is that we're, we're kind of doing a flyover, and we are pulling out 
the snapshots. The snapshots that give us a picture and a view inside the life of one of the great servants and one of the great leaders of God, the Apostle Paul. This guy was a world-class leader. Uh, he is a guy who, who truly uh, has, has left a legacy who has affected countless millions over 2,000 years. Uh, in, in terms of actual impact on people's lives, uh, the Apostle Paul is right up there at the, at the very, very top. Uh, a natural-born leader, uh, a, a guy who had the pedigree, a guy who had all the qualifications, a guy who had uh, stupendous gifts, uh, a guy who was, quite frankly, against the Lord and using his energies against the very thing that ultimately he was called to build. Fascinating story. And Second Corinthians there, is, there are more biographical insights in, into this guy, Paul, and to what made him tick, and how God developed him, and how God develops men. There is a process by which God develops his men. There is a process by which God takes us from immaturity to maturity. There is a process that God gets us ready for the unique work that he has predestined to happen in our lives uh, a lot of folks, they hear the word predestined and they, they kind of shirk back. A, a lot of evangelical Christians, for some reason, don't like that word, but that word is in your Bible. If you look at Ephesians 1, you'll see that, among other places in your Bible. In love, he predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. Uh, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. You're alive for a reason. doesn't mean you don't have choices but what it does mean is that um, it just means God's bigger than you are. It means that uh, just, just as you don't let your four-year-old run your family, so God doesn't let us run his family. Uh, God has a plan. God has a purpose. We all fit in in different spots, but we all have been created and designed to do a specific work that others, others, no one else does the work that you do. We're all individuals that he has created. And there is a purpose for us being alive. Now, in order for us to achieve that purpose, he has to do a work in our lives. I, I've said this many times in here. We've got men in here, so we've got leaders in here. We're different kinds of leaders. Not everybody has the same style of leadership. But if you're a man, you're a leader. Somebody's watching you. You're influencing someone in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you were designed to influence. You were designed to impact. Uh, some guys are more upfront. Some guys are more vocal. Some guys are more uh, under the radar, behind the scenes. But we're called to be leaders in our particular area and temperament. God designs us for the work. Uh, someone has said in the past, and let me see if I can pull this out correctly. God appoints the man for the time, and God appoints the time for the man. God's always got his men at the right time ready to step on the scene. It's unique how that happens in history. And he's also got that plan for the future. Paul was one of the all-time greats. And as we go through Corinthians, we get these snapshots into how God put this guy together. Well, the reason I'm interested in those snapshots is that what Paul went through is probably what I'm going to go through. Now, I'll never have the leadership that he had, and, and you won't either. But the processes are the same that God takes men through. A few weeks ago... Uh, Mary found some pictures that had been developed but put in a drawer. And she's got all of these um, big books, big binders. And they're all organized. And she's got the pictures of the kids, you know, and, and the dates. And it's, it's, we, we got a whole shelf of them, bookcase of them. And so what she did, she said, I, I've got a file. I'm just going to go ahead and file these. And 
So uh, I don't know, I went somewhere and I came back and, and there wasn't one, uh, uh, what do you call this thing, binder. There wasn't one scrapbook out. Uh, there, were, there were about nine of them out. And, and she said, this has turned into a bigger job than I thought. And for the next few days, next four days maybe, uh, those binders, those scrapbooks of pictures, of photographs, they're the, all over the dining table, all over the kitchen counter, uh, all over one of the desks. I mean, every, just about everywhere I went, and every time I walked by, I'd see a picture, and what would happen, it, one would catch my eye and go, oh, gosh, gosh, look at that. And maybe it was something of the kids or a picture of a... And, and, and when I'd see that image, that particular picture, we had one, when we lived in Little Rock, they had the 100-year the snow in Little Rock, and it snowed 18 inches in, uh, overnight, and it just shut the whole town down. I mean, it was great. And if you know anything about Little Rock, there are a lot of hills. And, uh, uh, and we got a picture of the kids, you know. They, they, they built a snowman. Mary got out there, and he was really a pretty darn good snowman. And there were the kids standing next to it, you know. And Josh is about two years old, and he looks, he, he, he looks absolutely frozen. He can't even breathe. And there's John and Rachel, you know. And I just, man, that is neat. And then I immediately remembered that uh, I, I did a foolish thing. There was ice on the streets. But um, I got in the car and I went down to a hardware store where I had seen the week before a flexi flyer sled. And I bought that sucker. And for about the next eight days, we had an absolute blast just going down hills, out of control. You know, I had Rachel and John on the sled. You know, she's seven, he's, he's four. They hit a mailbox. She busted her nose. I mean, it was a precious memory. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I just see that picture of the snowman and the three kids, and all this stuff starts flooding back. We get, we get snapshots like that in 2 Corinthians of Paul's life, and you get a glimpse of you, you just don't have the snapshot and the image, but there's more to it. You, you get inside the skin of this guy, and you begin to see the process by which the Lord works to develop us. And, it, and, and you know what it does? It encourages us. Because this process is not an easy process. This is a tough process. This, uh, this is not one big vacation. This is not a life on the beach in Maui. Uh, this is a tough road. It is a tough process. It'll It'll, it'll rip your guts out at certain times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to zero in on something. And we're going to kind of hit this from the back door. Because what's happened in 2 Corinthians 2 is that Paul's addressing a situation. And the situation that he is addressing is probably something that he addressed in 1 Corinthians. Now, we don't know for sure, but it's, there's pretty good evidence for this. And before I read it, I'll go ahead and give you the context. In 1 Corinthians, the church of Corinth was really a screwed-up church. Uh, Corinth was a horrific city. It was a city like New Orleans. It would be a city like San Francisco, a seaport city. Uh, uh, tremendous uh, idolatry. Tremendous sexual uh, immorality. It was, uh, it was part of the religions. People, ships coming in from all over the world. Every, uh, when we went into Manhattan on Saturday night, this, this guy who was raised there, he said, I'm going to take you to this pizza place, and it's the best place in New York. There are about 9,000 best pizza places in New York. You know that. Well, it was pretty good. A little hole in the wall. But it's just right there in Greenwich Village. And... Uh, and when we were done, we just, we just took a walk, you know, maybe four, five, six blocks. And, oh, gosh, it was just so sad. The broken lives. The, the broken lives that you see. Just walking four or five blocks. Just, it, just, it, just, it just makes you so sad. The sin. Uh, the pride of sin. The uh, displays of sin. And the arrogance, uh, the, the defiance of what is right and good and holy and decent and honorable. 
That's the way Corinth was in its day. Um, this is where these people lived. And these people had been influenced by all of this around them. Uh, the church of Corinth was not a mature church. They were not in great shape. They had all kinds of issues. Now, specifically in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, you had a man living in sin with his father's wife. Paul said, not even the Gentiles do that. Paul says, remove the man from your midst. Now, with that in mind, Paul's going to speak of someone whom they disciplined in the church for immorality. That's our setup for 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, you ready? We'll read some verses, then we'll comment. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you that all my joy would be the joy of you all. Now catch this here. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. The whole church is affected by this. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Here's what seems to be the case. This man was disciplined. Uh, apparently, he was repentant. He came back. He asked for forgiveness. In their immaturity, Paul had a report that they were not extending forgiveness to this man who was repentant. So what Paul is saying is, and, and really the crux of the matter is, in verse 7, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Now catch this. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We're going to come back to that. Excessive sorrow. In verse 11, Paul kind of comes in the back door and tells them why it's important that they would forgive. He says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. There is an enemy. He's real. He, he is not co-equal with God, Satan, but he is a force. He is a fallen angel that has been given X amount of room for a certain time. Uh, and God uses the enemy. It, that's hard for us to comprehend, but the fact of the matter is, there is this angel, Satan, Lucifer, he was the most beautiful of the angels in heaven. When he fell and rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. Uh, and for a season, he is loosed. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the enemy. Uh, he thinks that he is free to make a lot of moves on the chessboard. But he has been checkmate before he ever made his first move. God uses him for his purposes. Now, that's not to say that he is not able to oppose those who love Christ. When a man gets serious about Christ, the enemy will then get serious about you. When a guy isn't serious, when a guy is just, you know, doing the church thing, you know what I mean. Not following Christ, not loving Christ, not pursuing Christ. When a guy is just doing the church deal, because, you know, you're supposed to do it. The enemy really doesn't bother with you because there's no reason to bother with you because you have already been neutralized. You are not having an impact. You are not having an influence. Uh, you're, you're coasting. Uh, you are not making a difference in the lives of your children or your grandchildren. You're just simply doing what you do. So quite frankly, he's already got you where he wants you. Now, when a guy gets serious about the Lord, that puts you into another category. And what Paul is saying here is that even in this, because you see what the enemy wants to do, he's a schemer. He is a schemer. 
And what he wants to do is, is that he wants to divide and he wants to conquer. He loves to, um, he, he loves to scheme against churches. He loves to scheme by pitting individuals against one another. He loves to, and he does this a thousand different ways. Someone will get jealous of someone else. Uh, I have worked just as hard, but that person was the one who got the credit. Their name was mentioned up front. My name wasn't mentioned. Satan loves stuff like that, you see. Uh, that's how he divides a church. And, and, and many of us have seen this happen, and it's such a sad thing. It's such a tragic thing. Uh, he loves to divide families. He loves to uh, divide family members against one another. He loves to get division. He loves to get wedges. He loves to take uh, lifelong friends and get uh, division between them. He is a divider. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is a murderer. Uh, he wants to destroy that which God has built, Wh whether it's the church or whether it's the family, whether it is a... Uh, a business or company that has been devoted to follow Christ, this is what he does. Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. Uh, Ephesians 6 says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We, we always... Um, We always appreciate strong leadership. I love reading biographies. It's just one of the things I enjoy more than anything else. Uh, I, I love to read biographies of, 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 of great leaders. Uh, because, you know, great crisis always demands a great leader. And, and it's one, of, one of the fascinating things about history is, is that when there is crisis in the world, leaders step on the scene. Now, you understand that God runs all things, God runs uh, all events, and God oversees the affairs of men. Even men who don't know him, he has prepared for certain tasks and given certain gifts to, and they come from different backgrounds. It, it was said of uh, George Patton, this, this tremendous military leader, this tremendous leader of men, this tremendous motivator of men, uh, th this, this, this man who would lead men into battle, this, this man who, need, who, who knew no fear. Uh, it, it was said when he died that we would never see his like again. But we did see his like again. The George Patton to which I refer is not the George Patton you're thinking of, of World War II. Uh, I'm thinking about his uh, great-grandfather who was a general in, World, in, in, in the Civil War. You see, that was the stock which he came from. They said, we'll never see his like again. Well, we did see his like again. You see? Because, you see, God always has men ready and prepared for whatever crisis. Crisis uh, demands leadership. And when it isn't there, it's, it's very apparent. In a crisis, and I was thinking about this uh, Saturday night in, in, in Manhattan, and we... You know, we're driving around, and this guy driving us, I don't have a clue where we are. For all I know, we're in Alabama somewhere. But, I mean, this guy's taking back streets, and all of a sudden we go by, and he goes, well, there's World Trade Center, you know, and, and, of course, there's nothing there. And we're driving by, and I, I'd been on that plaza, and, you know, I mean, it was just, I mean, we just went right by. But we, we certainly appreciated in that crisis some leadership that was, that was displayed. Now, let me ask you this. In a crisis, if you had your druthers, uh, who would you choose? Would you choose the mayor of New Orleans, or would you choose the mayor of New York City? Would you choose the governor of Louisiana? Would you choose the governor of, well, not the governor. I keep going back. Giuliani was a great leader in that situation. You just, you just got to give the guy credit. Uh, he actually was trapped in a building, if you know the story, and people with him and all that, and he exercised leadership. See, what I'm saying is this. Uh, 
I love to read about Churchill. I love to read about uh, leaders like Eisenhower. I love to, I, uh, Lincoln, Washington. I love to read about leaders. And um, one of the things about leaders is that we see them under crisis, true leaders. We see them under crisis, and we see their resolve, and we see their steadiness. And, we, and, and what happens is when there is crisis and when there is catharsis, leaders calm people. And leaders give direction. And leaders stabilize situations. Now, those leaders aren't always that way. In order for a leader to become a leader like that, they have to get hurt and they have to get crushed. And they have to go through a process. And we've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. Um, As the enemy is attempting to bring down leaders and defeat them, God is working through the very same circumstances to develop those same leaders. Paul says something here in this text that is, I think, think pretty insightful here. He is talking about the fact that we have a very, very difficult situation here. What this man did was horrible. It was terrible. But forgiveness needs to be extended because this is the church of Jesus Christ. We're not not a country club. We're not a bridge club. Uh, We're not an athletic club. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And when someone has erred grievously, even as we have erred grievously, and they are repentant, They are to be received and forgiven. And what does he say? Because we don't want advantage taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Um, See, this is a leader. This this is a leader realizing we got an issue here. And, and, And the issue... The issue that Paul raises to me is really kind of interesting because Paul's concern, he's got a twofold concern. Number one is that the church not be divided by not forgiving the guy. That's one concern. But here's the other concern. His concern is for the guy who was in sin and then repented that this guy might not go into excessive sorrow. Now, what's that all about? The Bible talks about repentance, and the Bible talks about uh, an authentic repentance that is characterized. You guys, you know about uh, synthetic repentance. We see it in our culture. Somebody gets caught doing something, but you know, I mean, they're caught, and there's no way out, so they're sorry, but what are they sorry about? I'm sorry they got caught. Doggone it. You know what? If I just had been a little sharper, I, I could have. They're sorry they got caught. You can tell the difference, can't you, between someone who's sorry they got caught and someone who was sorry for what they did. You can recognize it. You can see it because it has to do with the heart. There is there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There is a brokenness before the Lord. There there is a. Uh, 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 repulsion of what one has done. There is no defense. There is no minimizing it. It is simply admitting it and absolutely saying, I did this. I was wrong. No excuses, no minimizing, no spin, no hiring a PR firm. You just flat come out and said, I screwed up. Now, God honors that. God moves when when he sees that kind of spirit in someone. Now, when forgiveness is not extended, now, the forgiveness comes from the Lord. But when the body doesn't forgive, there is a real danger to that individual that has come clean before the Lord. And the danger is, is that that person, and here's a scheme of the devil, that that person might move from legitimate sorrow the sorrow that leads to repentance, catch this, that he might go from that kind of sorrow 
into what Paul calls excessive sorrow. Have you ever experienced excessive sorrow? It's not pleasant. Excessive sorrow. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could go back and change things we have said to people? Wouldn't it be great if we could go back and make things right with people that we hurt, people that we disappointed, people that we betrayed? Wouldn't it be great if we could go back and raise our children again, knowing what we know now? Wouldn't that be great? Because you see, we wouldn't make the mistakes that we made. And see, when you've made mistakes like that, as everybody in this room has, what happens is, here's a scheme of the enemy. Here's a scheme of Satan. He loves to bring up those mistakes. He loves to bring up those sins. Well, they might be 15 years ago, 30 years ago. What he does is, he brings them up from our past, and he paralyzes us in the present. He absolutely freezes us by what we've done in the past. Because we feel so cotton pick and bad for what we did. There, there, are, there are just so many regrets in our life. I'd give anything to go back and change that. I'd, go be, I, I'd give anything to go back and be a different kind of husband in that marriage, but you can't. Um, sorrow is a good thing. Godly sorrow is a good thing. But we can move into excessive sorrow. And when one moves into excessive sorrow, one becomes immobilized, one becomes intimidated, one becomes uh, unable to fulfill the purpose that the risen Lord who forgave that past sin has in mind for that person who is forgiven right now in their present. But what's the scheme? The enemy brings up the past to freeze you right here. He does it all the time. I think this may be one of his top strategies with guys. Brings up the past to intimidate you right now in the present and keep you from doing what it is that God wants you to do. Paul's concerned about this guy. That he be forgiven. Uh, Is he ashamed? Yeah. Is he repentant? Yeah. Is he broken? Yeah. Should Should he be brought in? For you see, the Lord, the scripture says that he has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And by the way, how far is that? That's quite a ways, it seems to me. Uh, He wants us to know that Christ took our sin upon him. And when we come to Christ, that sin is not held against us anymore. Uh, The amazing thing to me is the enemy will bring up... uh, All right, here's this guy in the church. How How long was it that this thing had occurred in the past? I don't know, a year, two years, four years, I don't know. It was a past event. Uh, The church has to forgive to underscore that the man has been forgiven. In other words, what we don't need to happen is for the church to cooperate with the scheme of the enemy. Christ died for that sin. Your past, my past, Christ died for those sins. All of those sins were put on Jesus. When Jesus took those blows before he ever got to the cross, when, when Jesus, that, that whip just lacerated his back like hamburger, when his face was pummeled beyond recognition, when he was put on a cross, when his body was broken, when his blood was shed, uh, our sin, that which we regret, was put on Christ, and he paid for it. The amazing thing about the Lord is that his strategy is the complete opposite of the enemy's strategy, which should be no surprise to us at all, because the enemy brings up our past, 
You know what the Lord does about our past? He forgets our past. Your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Is that not astonishing? That, that, that is an absolutely astonishing. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews. I want to show you this. The, 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 this one verse, this one verse can set somebody free. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. <sighs> Guys, that's what you call grace. That, that's what you call mercy. That, that, that is, uh, Bob asked me, uh, he said, hey, what's your favorite hymn? I'll, I'll, pl I'll play it next week. I said, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That absolutely blows me away. Here's another one. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Then how does it go? Where shall his praise begin? Taking away my burdens. Setting my spirit free. And the wonderful grace... Let's stand and sing that together. <laughs> the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus. You guys know this song? Deeper than the mighty rose. We're going to have choir practice tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, so you guys be here. That, that's, what this stuff, that's what this stuff is all about, you see? And, and here's the deal. If we don't get a grip, see, Chuck's been doing this series on grace. Why does he keep hammering grace? Because it's what keeps us going. It's what keeps us alive. That's the message of the Bible. Otherwise, if there's no grace, we fall into excessive sorrow. And we're paralyzed for the rest of our lives. But that's not how God wants us to live. He has set us, catch this, he has set us free. And whom the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. Now I got a question. I got a question. And here's my question. Why is it, why is it that Paul is so big and why is he so concerned about this guy and excessive sorrow? What, 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 what's that all about? Why is Paul aware of that scheme of the devil? Well, you say he's an apostle, he's, he's an apostle and you know, God's using him by the Spirit of God to write truth. Yeah, I understand that. But God worked through these guys. He worked through their lives and their experience and their personality. What I, what I want to know is how did Paul know so much about excessive sorrow to know that it was a danger and a scheme of the enemy? You know what I think? He knew it because he dealt with it. I think, I think what the enemy threw up in Paul's face on a regular basis was Paul Saul's past. Who he used to be. What he used to do. We know he held the coats of those who killed Stephen. Technically, he's an accessory to murder. But we also know that that wasn't the only event. We know that he was so zealous against the Lord that he took it on as his full-time profession to go against this new sect called Christianity and these followers of Christ. He was going to eradicate it. He was going to stamp it out. He was going to destroy it. Do you think that was the only murder that Paul was involved in before he came to know Christ? I'm telling you, it wasn't. Wherever this guy went, the, the believers were shaking in absolute fear. I've been reading reports this week, and, and you can read them all the time. Uh, of, of what's happening in 
in Indonesia to believers in certain sections where Muslim terrorists are coming in and coming into church services and taking people out and what they're doing to them. People in Sudan, Christians whose children are being taken from them and sold into slavery. It's just... And see, Paul was one of these guys. In his zealousness, he was sure that he was right. And he was against the very plan of God and the people of God. And then on the way to Damascus, when the Lord appeared to him, what a remarkable thing. And you know the story. Now, he becomes a great tool and a great vessel of the Lord. Do you think at night when Paul went to sleep that he ever thought about the families of those men of whom he was involved in their murder? Do you ever think about his do you think he ever thought about their wives and the grief and the heartache that he brought into their lives? Do you think he ever thought about their kids without their dad? And he was the guy who did it. I think he thought about that every day of his life. I think he fought this battle on a daily basis because the enemy was working overtime to paralyze this guy who was a force for Christ. I think that's why Paul was so acutely tuned in to the danger of excessive sorrow because he dealt with it. Now, I find that interesting because we go back to the first chapter. So when Paul dealt with excessive sorrow, what is it that God did for him? You say, Steve, we went over this. That's right. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, uh, pick up 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Could we say this? Who comforts us in all our excessive sorrow, for some of us. See, I, I think part of Paul's affliction, he had all kinds of afflictions. I think part of it was excessive sorrow, regretting his past. See, what happened? The Lord comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here it is again. So here's Paul dealing with excessive sorrow, vain regrets. I spent my life, I can't, can't sleep at night, is tortured, has to fight the enemy off. Then you got another brother that's in the exact same situation, what does Paul do? He writes to the church. He encourages them to forgive. Paul provides comfort to that one. The comfort that he received, he is now passing on to that one. That is the process, guys. See, that's leadership. That's being used. That's your life count. So here's Lance going through this chemo stuff. And you know, he, he, yeah, he's fighting the fight. And, and it just, we were talking before, and it just, you know what? It just gets old. You just like it to get over. Absolute. Doggone it. That's right. It, you know what I love about the Lord? We don't suffer randomly. We don't suffer just to suffer. We suffer on purpose for a purpose. He's using the suffering. And the enemy's all over me. Fine. I, I, and I, you know what? The enemy gets all over us. The enemy's trying to divide my marriage. You know what? God's bigger than the enemy, and you know what the enemy will do? The enemy will try to divide your marriage. You know what God will do? God will use that attack to make your marriage stronger. Now, you might have to go through hell in the process, depending on where you are. But God works through situations like that. God takes marriages that are done 
and where a wife is emotionally dead. And God can resurrect a wife like that. That's what God does. And then you've got a ministry to those who think their marriages are dead and can never be revived. That's what God does. This is a tough, tough process. But it's a process that is real. It's a process that is designed to enable us to reach the very thing that we desire most in life. Nobody likes to hurt. Nobody likes to suffer. But it's the suffering. It's, guys, catch this. Before I say that, let me back up. I, um, there are a lot of guys around here that have got degrees from Dallas Seminary. A lot of, a lot of guys around here that know the scriptures. You know that. That's one reason you're here. A lot of great Bible teachers here. You know, as a young guy, um, I went to, to seminary and got a theological degree. I passed it for a while. And then I went and I got another theological degree. I got two theological degrees. Uh, can I tell you why I went and got those theological degrees? I thought those theological degrees would equip me for ministry. <coughs> that, and that, you know what? They, they come in... Because, you know, they'll help you understand some things biblically and, you know, I'm not dismissing those things. But can I tell you this? Theological degrees don't equip you for ministry. You know what equips you for ministry? Suffering and brokenness equips you for ministry. Can I be honest with you? If you've, if you've been nothing but a rip-roaring success all your life, you've got... You don't have a cotton-picking thing to say to anybody. And by the way, you were totally deceived. <laughs> because you have not been a rip-roaring success all your life. Have you? No, none of us have. Here's what happens. We get into sorrow, we get into excessive sorrow. And here's what happens. Here's one of the, here, here is one of the traits of knowing you're there. As the guy says, I, I, I have screwed up so badly in my life that uh, I, I, uh, God can never use me. God will never use me. I'm a failure. And right, I got a question for you. If God doesn't use failures, who else is he going to choose from? Can you tell me that? The guy in this room who's never failed. Bob, come up front so you can sign autographs for us. <laughs> Nobody's coming up front. Why? Because we've all failed. Because we've all screwed up. Every guy in this room has regrets. Now the question is, have you taken those regrets to the Lord? Have you, have you taken those things you wish you could have back? Have you taken them to the Lord? If you have... With brokenness, there's repentance and forgiveness. And as you yield to him, and as you follow him, he will use that in your life. The comfort which you receive, he'll use it to minister to others. This is the process of leadership that God takes a man through. It's not real popular, but it's necessary. Now I'll close with this because the time's over. See, the fact, you know why theological degrees can't equip you for ministry? Because there are courses that God has for his men that they don't offer at seminary. And if they offered them at seminary, nobody would ever sign up for them. <laughs> Let alone pay the tuition. Nobody in their right mind would sign up for this. And don't we find ourselves saying from time to time, I didn't sign up for this. And you're exactly right. He signed you up for this. And he will get you through the course. That's how gracious he is.
He not only signs you up, he gives you what you need to get through it and then to be qualified to minister. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for, for the wonderful grace, for the forgiveness, for the mercy that we can never... Um, well, there's no bottom to it. As deep as we might go, your mercy's deeper still. Some of us tonight need to be reminded of this because we have been battling with the enemy all week. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would remind us of how great thou art. We sing these songs, and a lot of times we even sing them just because we know them so well, we'll sing them in church. And, and we just sing them out, and our minds can be disengaged even as we sing the words. But Lord, help us to grab onto the words and the concepts so that we would be aware of the schemes of the devil. We are not ignorant of his devices. We put on the full armor of God. Jesus is our defense attorney. He defends us against the accusations. And many of the accusations are true. But Jesus has already paid the price. Set us free again tonight. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.